0: Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin.
1: I'm Grima talwar
0: And I'm Alvin Tejo. Today, uh, we have lots to talk about uh, from the four governments' new restrictions on travel, to coordination with PostMedia, to discredit a member of its own science table, to potentially an actually good thing the Ford government might have done in implementing new regulations on how universities and colleges should treat investigations into sexual violence and assault. So not all doom and gloom today. Make sure you stick around for later in the pod, though, because Grima sat down with Brittany Andrew Amofa from the Broadbent Institute on the importance of paid sick leave. It is probably the key missing thing in uh, our province's response to the pandemic and from what I gather from it was a good conversation.
1: Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was dynamic. And Brittany knows what she's talking about.
0: Make sure you stick around. But maybe we'll just dive right in following our premier's example. It is finally time for decisive action. So Alvin,
2: tell us a little bit about the new travel and COVID restrictions. So we've been hearing a lot of bluster, especially from the provincial premiers, including Premier Ford around how much international travel was affecting things and, and how we need to close the border and all that. So I'm not sure if this was a direct response to that, but the prime minister announced last Friday that all international travels coming into Canada must now be COVID tested. Uh, And while waiting for the result and a negative test, they must be quarantined in a government-approved hotel. They may have to stay up there for up to three days waiting for the results, all at their own expense. The expense he estimated could be $2,000 or more for the test and accommodations which a lot of people are balking at and and kind of upset about. And this is expected to take place as early as this Thursday and runs until the end of April. So if you have a negative test, you'll then be able to quarantine in your own home for the remainder of the 14-day isolation period that's still required by the government. But if you have a positive test, you'll be sent to a different government-approved facility where they will check you further for other variants of the virus. This is the government's biggest concern at the moment is that the other variants such as the UK, South African, Brazil, Brazilian or other variants are potentially more contagious or deadly than the current one that is facing Ontarians. This also leads the prime minister to announce a travel ban to Mexico and the Caribbean with all Canadian airline carriers canceling flights to those destinations. And this was negotiated between the government and those airlines. Notably, however, American airlines are still able to travel to these countries to and from Canada. This took effect last Sunday and it runs again until the end of April. All international flights are now limited in Canada to inbound and outbound to Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, and Vancouver airports only. So a couple of questions on this, and I do want to take a shot at the snowbirds at some point because they've been (laughs) pretty up in arms about some of these restrictions, to which I say, I don't know what you were expecting was going to happen. People are talking about these restrictions, especially with the provincial premiers blaming international travels for the increased numbers instead of their own potential inaction. and that while the federal government is estimating only 1.8% of COVID cases were transmitted through international travel. At the same time, most Canadians do support these restrictions and expected them in place a long time ago. I guess the question is, do we think that the premiers like Ford and Kenny have successfully convinced the public that the feds should have done more and are to blame for some of these increased numbers?
0: This is one of those things, Alvin, where I think the policy and the politics can be talked about in very different ways. So maybe starting with the politics of it, I think it's pretty clear this is a move that the vast majority of Canadians and Ontarians support. Polling has confirmed that harsh border measures and further restrictions on travel enjoys broad support across people who support all parties. The part of the politics that I find A little frustrating, you alluded to, which is that international travel is nowhere near the level of significance to where we're at in the pandemic as some of the other pieces, notably people needing to go to work despite potentially having been exposed to COVID. So, I mean... I was a little annoyed at how the many media outlets just ran with this as a big victory for the Ford government and something that the Ford government kind of got reluctant approval from the feds on, because I think it feeds into a narrative that they're trying to create, which is that Ontario is being held back by the federal government, which I think across most categories is not true. So that's the politics on the policy. It's good policy. We didn't need the new strains for this to be a good idea. And even though it's only 1.8% of cases. 1.8% of cases can grow quite a bit with the new strains. So I'm in support of the measure. I'm just a little annoyed at the politics.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think just quickly, what's interesting about this whole thing is that if we go back to March of last year, when the pandemic first began, I remember discussing on the pod, like, should borders be closed? Should they not? President Trump at that time was an advocate for it. And at that time, the science kind of suggested maybe need to. And since then, the science has evolved. And so this push coming from an evidence perspective shows our willingness to evolve with evidence on some things. And I think that is really interesting here, right? That as the evidence is evolving on an issue like this, the government is is changing its course and is advocating for a change. But on other things where there is evidence to suggest that despite where you might have been a year ago or five years ago, that you need to change, they're not willing to change. And I think that is something that people should keep in mind because it's both a matter of evidence and a matter of convenience. And so something to think about.
2: One of the things I've been talking to a number of other politicos about is there's this obsession around who's going to get the credit and who's going to get the blame for a lot of what's been happening in and around COVID. Everybody obviously wants to take credit for all the good stuff and wants to pass on the blame to others. We've got two elections coming up in the next year and a half. The federal government is almost certainly going to go to an election at some point in 2021. The provincial election is happening in 2022. And there's this sort of constant back and forth around uh, well, provinces need to distribute the vaccines better. And then the provincial government saying, well, we need more vaccines in the first place. And then the feds coming back and be like, well, you could have distributed it to whoever you wanted to. And you could have given it to everyone in a long-term care home and prevented those deaths. And so it's a very Canadian political argument when provincial governments blame the feds and the feds blame the provinces. How well do we think either side is doing at the moment in terms of owning the successes and passing the blame on the on the failures? they're both making valiant efforts right now. I think what we've seen
0: generally is that Trudeau and Ford's polling changes have tracked together. And I think it is a really interesting conversation that you can get into about federalism because clearly the provincial government and the federal government view each other as potential scapegoats for problems. And, I have yet to see evidence that people view it that way. I don't think they understand the role that the federal government plays in a decision like this versus the province. And I think the most frustrating thing to see has been the Ford government's consistent effort, and we talked a little about this last week, to shove as much dirt north as possible on the vaccine rollout, on these kinds of things, because I think it's not only bad practice for governing, I also think it has thus far proven to be ineffective politics.
1: Yeah, I think on the politics side and who is affected on this question around snowbirds, I think it's, again, convenient that people have forgotten that we have diaspora communities from Mexico and the Caribbean who, for whatever reason, might need to go visit family, friends, whatever the issue is, actually need to go to Mexico and the Caribbean. And so the cancellation of flights, I think, speaks volumes again around around politically the messages that are being sent out and actual everyday life for some communities or some people. I think the issues between the federal and provincial governments is interesting. I think that this might be a small win for the the Ford government, because it speaks to a demographic that I think naturally might be more supportive of the Ford government and perhaps not as supportive of the Trudeau government. And so I think that's, it's interesting to see how that plays out.
0: Yeah. Before we move on Grima, what you said really drove home for me in the fact that there are communities that aren't being centered. Like, The villain here that is in the media is a rich white old person going to Florida and upset that they can't do that without personal costs now. And I think it is interesting how useful it is for potentially both governments to have a villain in a story who is not sympathetic, who is being centered, when in fact, so far this is not the reason why we have. January mm-hmm. has been the most deadly month of COVID. Mm-hmm. This is not anywhere. This is not even in the top five reasons. Mm-hmm. So that th- 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 it, your comment really drove that point home for me. Maybe moving us on to another interesting and troubling story related to COVID and the Ford government. On Tuesday, the extremely credible newspaper, The Toronto Sun, published a story that Dr. David Fisman, a University of Toronto professor, epidemiologist, and member of the Provincial Science Table, had accepted paid work on behalf of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario between June and September on 2020. The Science Table, which is an independent advisory table to the COVID response, requires its members to declare conflicts of interest every six months, and its job is to basically prepare Summaries of scientific evidence to feed our COVID response. So I guess he updated his form in June and his form was recently updated this January, where he included uh, disclosure relationships uh, with ETFO and with the Ontario Nurses Association, which included paid work. When the media request related to the story initially came to Fisman, he actually offered his resignation to the, to the table, which I thought was interesting, so as not to distract from the table's work. And the director responsible for the table refused the resignation, saying that he Fisman had not actually broken any policies. There are sort of 20 independent experts on the science table who provide advice, so that to the table did not constitute a conflict of interest. This did not stop Doug Ford's office from releasing a statement that the connections between Dr. Fisman and Fo were extremely concerning. And that our expectation is that anyone providing advice in this government would do so absent of agenda or bias, and therefore this paid relationship raises legitimate
2: concern. So wait, Chris, I guess the question is, why would the Ford government release a statement on this if the government's own science table had already indicated that he didn't break the policy? So
0: this is where things, I think, get a little wacky here. So the first thing is we have to understand is that Fisman's work with ETFO is not secret, although it was not officially disclosed on a form until January. Fisman had been tweeting about his opposition to the government's back to school plan since October and even appeared in an EDFO press release related to a Ontario Labor Relations Board proceeding, which the government would have certainly been following, would have certainly received word of, would have certainly been at least brought to the attention of the Minister of Education's office. So this should not have been a surprise to the government in when when the disclosure form was submitted in January. The second thing is that Fisman is not a government official. And this is something that I think people might not understand where some basic civics is handy. He is assisting the government by providing COVID-related advice, but he is not a nonpartisan civil servant. He is part of basically a volunteer expert panel. And he has been publicly critical of the back-to-school plan, which I think that when the table looked at it, was something they determined he had the right to be as an independent scientific expert that doesn't necessarily denigrate his advice. And he's one of 20 voices on the table. So his opposition has to have been embarrassing for the government, considering that he is a key advisor, but he is not a nonpartisan civil servant.
2: I'm also wondering if this has to do with some of the other things that people have been talking about on Twitter lately, especially around how the government might be criticizing openly or coordinating open criticism of people who are less than positive on the government, especially when it comes to their their performance and the reaction in the medical field. And I understand it makes sense that David might not been a favorite in the premier's office. But do we think that this is part of a coordinated strategy between Doug Ford and intentionally discrediting people who are being critical, especially in the medical field?
0: Yeah. And that's, I think, the, the really troubling component of this story. So I don't think there is clear evidence of like coordination, but the timing and approach certainly raises eyebrows. His resignation had already been rejected by the science table by the time the story came out. And if the government could have just chosen not to respond to it and let the story live its own life, the fact that the government at the highest level decided to get involved and Call this a problem and led credence to the Sun story is a political choice, and for sure is a political choice to discredit an expert who they might have had political problems with. Or it could have raised those concerns if when Fisman was in that EdVote press release in the fall. Like waiting for this, like, form to be submitted seems like a very inside the track kind of way of doing this even weirder and this is like a thing that a lot of people are pointing to and it's not evidence of like collusion but it's it is weird is that moments before the story was tweeted out larissa whaler who is former director of communications tweeted a link to the story so unless you believe that his office and his former staff are sitting there just refreshing the sun until they find something to like retweet which could be true like that doesn't seem totally nuts, But it seems like the story may have been anticipated in some way, at least by some in the conservative media ecosystem.
2: Can we just talk about what the accusation is? Because specifically yeah. what people think is happening is that Larissa or somebody who works with her is intentionally writing these negative stories for Doug Ford, selling them, giving them to the papers to publish and basically say, here, talk shit about any of these people who are talking shit about us. And this makes it more legitimate.
0: It's worth noting that Larissa Whaler has deleted her Twitter account now, which may have just been to like avoid this storm and this fury and this speculation. But I think like, just on the very basis that the Ford government didn't raise opposition to this story back in October when they knew that Fisman was publicly offside, the fact that they chose to comment on it and release a statement is... Certainly, I think, sends a a message to folks on the science table that the premier's office is not going to sit silently if they tweet or say something negative about the government. And that does not speak well to an ethic of supporting independent advice, particularly when the Ford government is catching flack about ignoring independent advice. It certainly sends a chill throughout the whole health system at a time when we need to hear the voices of experts the most. But I'm really curious for your input. We've all worked in government before. We've dealt with conflicts of interest. We have all, I think, probably worked with independent consultants and advisors with deep ties in these sectors that we've worked with. Like, What do you guys make of this story, this angle, and the forward response?
1: Well, I think most simply, is there a conflict of interest here, Dr. Fisman? And I should note that I've been a student of his, and he's excellent, was advising both ETFO and on the science advisory table with a desire to help control the pandemic in Ontario. And that ultimately is also the desire of the Ontario government, one would imagine, right? And so despite the labour issues, I presume between ETFO and the Ontario government, the reason why dr fisman was was on this table for efo was to help control the spread of covid amongst teachers and students and others in our school system so like i think that it's really interesting that again there's this pitting of different people and sides here when really one would imagine that they're working towards the same aim if the government is feeling weary about the public advocate or the public advocacy, not mm-hmm. just by by doctors and health practitioners, but by tons of people. I think that it's it sends chills beyond the health sector. It's about what does it mean for democracy, right? When you feel like you can't take public flack for the decisions that you're making, and so I, again, like I go back to my earlier comment around. There's a lot being said about whether this government is following the evidence or not. The political risk of continuing down the road that they're on and whatever wins they might be seeing actually is costing a lot of lives and is hurting a lot of people. And lots of people are getting sick.
2: I mean, one of the things that I always thought of in government was that very few people, and I mean, very few people are actually completely nonpartisan. People vote. That's It doesn't mean they vote the same way every time, but in all likelihood, they do. They have their opinions. And for the most part, they're hired for those opinions as expert that they are and in their field, that's their job. And if they were doing their job properly, they would express those opinions in a way that will help advocate and change the things that they want to get changed for what they care about so deeply. So when governments are afraid of letting people say what they want to say, and That is very concerning, as Grima mentioned, and I think a sign of uh, a good government is one that's willing to hear opinions from all sides and take it to heart and consider it honest advice that they're trying to do the right thing and not this conspiracy to do partisan Things to try and get the next guy elected instead of you, right? But generally speaking, I'll say people are not that Machiavellian about these types of things and are just genuinely trying to do the right thing, especially when you're talking to the healthcare sector, where they're seeing on the ground exactly how these decisions are affecting yeah. people, right? Yeah. And
0: I cannot emphasize this enough. The whole purpose Of the science table is to provide independent summaries of evidence. Nobody on the scientific table has the power to make decisions like it would be a problem. If like the deputy minister of health was advising at foe, that would be bad and anti democratic because they're a sworn civil servant, they need to carry out the will of the government like government all the time assembles panels of experts together to come give advice every government consultation I've ever done it's part of good process is to bring experts who might disagree who you might disagree with so the science table is a great thing that we have like it's a good part of the process the premier's office has basically signaled that they view the people on the science table as people who should be messengers for them and that is a misunderstanding of what that role is and what proper governance is. So maybe from uh, turning from uh, a point where I'm very frustrated with the Ford government to a point where actually they did something good this week. And we should maybe in a recurring segment on Ontario Loud, we're not just just all haters. We can talk maybe a little bit about what they did with sexual assault and violence regulations with respect to colleges and universities this week. So Grima.
1: So, Last week, Minister of Colleges and Universities Ross Romano announced that based on recommendations from the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance, or USA, that they would be making regulatory changes to require post-secondary institutions to amend their sexual violence and harassment policies to protect complainants from irrelevant questioning about their sexual history. Also, complainants would not be subject to disciplinary actions for violations of an institution's drug and alcohol use policies at the time the alleged sexual violence took place. In 2017, the Win government became the first province to require post-secondary educational sexual violence and harassment policy requirements in legislation. USA has been advocating for these improvements based on the work of Courage to Acts' national draft framework to address and prevent gender-based violence at post-secondary institutions in Canada. So friends, this is good. Very good.
2: I mean, we were talking about conflicts of interest, and I don't think there is one here, but just so people (laughs) know, but a dozen years ago, Chris, myself, and Sam all worked for the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance at the same time, along with former host Alexi White. We certainly have kept an eye on USA and their recommendations to government, and I think this was a great one. I mean, it's unbelievable that until now you have post secondary institutions in this province interviewing and requesting how sexually active mm-hmm. victims were as if that had any relevance into whether or not they were legitimately sexually assaulted mm-hmm. how many barriers are you going to create to make it more difficult for victims to come forward and be willing mm-hmm. to share what happened to them i'm glad that this government was actually able to see the concerns that people have raised and the concerns that usa raised around these things and and actually took the right action moving forward. Yeah, totally agree. This is just an unqualified good policy.
0: And I think almost as important as the signal it sends to institutions is the signal it sends to people who might be thinking of coming forward. Because the barriers here we know are so deep, like even if an institution in practice would never discipline someone for underage alcohol use coming forward with a sexual violent complaint, like I don't believe that is like best practice. But like, That's probably not obvious to everyone who would see the policy. So just even if institutions may have been doing the right thing, the fact that this is a reinforced standard from the province, and is announced at this level in this way, and anywhere in Ontario, you're going to get access to this right is awesome. And I mean, also a great example of how this is not a government who has been particularly good for students. Their biggest cut was to student aid. But like, it's an important reminder that even though you may need to advocate and speak out against the government's actions, on one hand, you can find internal champions, you can find people who care about issues, and work on things that are positive. That's like a powerful, has always been a powerful approach and continues to be. And this is just such a great reminder of it. So kudos to USA all of the people in the community who would have been working on this with the government and to the, the government for putting it forward like it's a big step and and unqualified support from for me on this rapid fire cool all right so friends i thought we would try a segment and i'm shamelessly stealing this from a, a podcast called the strategists and it's i just There's some headlines this week that I didn't do a lot of thinking about, but just provoked an emotional response to me. And I thought rather than tweeting out my snarky remarks on them, I would see if we could capture those remarks, just on on some certain like big high level headlines. So the first one that I saw is Trudeau faces a conflict of interest if he picks the next governor general in a minority parliament. This was after a conservative leader Aaron O'Toole basically went out and made this claim. So
2: this is such a horse. This is (laughs) a load of crap. I mean, the GG is one of the most useless. I mean, it's important constitutionally. And there's like, One moment every 100 years where they actually have to do something important. But to think that the GG has any sort of real effect on this is insane. Because, I mean, first of all, the GG used to be partisan appointments, right? It used to have former ministers or former premiers become the governor general or lieutenant governors in provinces. Like, it used to be a patronage appointment. And I kind of wish that one of the things the prime minister kept from the Stephen Harper days were the advisory panel on vice regal appointments, because that made it much more of a neutral thing. And it fits the prime minister's thoughts around Senate appointments and things like that. I don't know why he wouldn't want to continue that. Now, did, I'm sure, did the federal liberals think that having a former astronaut and someone as accomplished as the former governor general was going to be a slam dunk? Yes, absolutely. They Definitely thought that was going to be a slime dunk, but they're probably going to pick someone else and it's probably going to be someone maybe a little bit more bland, but no, there's not going to be any conflict of interest. That's ridiculous.
3: Yeah.
1: It just, it just reminds me of like the narratives from the U S around the picking Supreme court justices so close to an election. Like it's just like echoes around, of course, Supreme court justices have, a huge impact on public policy and legislation in the United States and so the appointment of a gg is nowhere near equivalent in terms of in terms of the impact that it has on that role has on everyday people but it just the narrative around it just rubs me The wrong way.
2: Like, what does Eric think is going to happen? Does he think that Justin's going to call for an election and then his friend is going to be like, no, you shouldn't do that because I'm the GG. You should continue running a minority government. Like, in what world is that going to happen after a confidence vote? Second, does he think he gets to be the next prime minister without going to an election? Like, that would never happen either. It doesn't matter who the GG is.
0: Yeah, we need a big civics. We need, like, way more public civics education and just literally on what a conflict of interest is. Because, yeah, the governor, if the prime minister goes to the governor general and requests an election, the governor general is not, I don't think, empowered to say no. Like, I don't think that's like a, that would be a pretty big
2: thing. Yeah. That would be like the queen reasserting power. <laughs> like, No, the, the biggest constitutional question parliament parliament has been the King-Bing affair when King went to the governor general and asked for a new election immediately after the last election, like within weeks of the last election he couldn't form a government so he said call another one and then the governor general said no you have to give the other guy a chance to form the government that is 100 percent, completely reasonable and what the gg should have been doing and the prime minister was wrong in that case right yeah. but that was resolved immediately this has been a year and a half almost two years since the last election there is nothing there's no gray area here right like the gg will do what they absolutely need to do Anyway, that wasn't so rapid, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next headline, Belinda Carhalios registers the new blue party of Ontario.
2: Alvin, I thought you might have thoughts on the new blue party of Ontario. So, I mean, this is, I will, I don't want to accuse them of anything because they're obviously uh, willing to litigate about stuff. But this is just another way for her and her uh, husband to basically fundraise and manage their own political operations under a different umbrella outside of her constituency, right? This is just another way to get a little bit more attention. It's not going to go anywhere. She'll lose the next election and the party will disappear. If anything, they should have went with the... What's the... People's party? What? People's party? Yes. If anything, they should have just made the Ontario wing of the People's Party instead. And then they might have actually had some real legs moving forward. Well, thank
1: goodness they didn't. So. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
2: Absolutely. (laughs) I mean,
0: A, in terms of like, I I love the reductionism of just the new blue party of Ontario being like, you liked the old blue party, you'll love the new blue party. (laughs) Also, B, I think we've seen this be an unsuccessful political strategy before. And while it's making headlines, and I think people are rightly worried about the far right, what I think I'm more concerned about than the new blue party is how disciplined the conservative vote has been around their current party. Yeah, Um, they
2: they will nominate and elect all these people like Derek Sloan, like Roman Babber, like all these people who are not, are too conservative for the conservative party when they say crazy things, but weren't too conservative when they got elected and nominated to their positions in the first place. These totally. people, there are going to be more of them. These people currently exist in these caucuses. Yeah.
0: So last one for today, Dr. Williams, uh, this is a quote from a Ford press conference. Dr. Williams is in a difficult position because he has to balance health and the economy a little. i just just don't know what to say about this one it's like
1: it's just no words it's the whole problem like the evidence sorry shows that if you control the pandemic and it might cost you a lot at the outset but over time your economy does better it's better for you economically Louder for people in the back. Like, I just don't understand. And that, I, I sound like a broken record.
0: I, I think what Ford probably meant to say is that Dr. Williams provides him advice and he needs to consider health and the economy. And we believe in Ontario Loud, that is wrongheaded. But I do think it is also indicative of what we were talking about earlier, where it's like, I don't think he he understands what these independent experts in government are supposed to be doing. Like the chief medical officer of health is not supposed to at all consider the needs of the economy. Maybe that that's the role of the premier, but like certainly not the chief medical officer of health. And Like, it's the same thing as the science table. A science table, like, those people are allowed to offer whatever advice they want. But all right, we'll take a a quick break and tell you about Patreon. And then we'll be back with Groomers interview with Brittany Andrew Amofa from the Broadband Institute. So stick around. Hey, it's me. And I just thought I would take a second out of your busy day to talk to you about Patreon. Patreon is how we support ourselves at Ontario Lab. Recording a podcast is not expensive, but it does cost a little bit month to month. We've brought on some new tools to help us do transcription, which we're really excited about. We are bringing on some new volunteers to help us with our communications. You may have seen our new fancy audiogram which we're going to use to get more people engaged in some of the more into some of the ideas of the pod. And yeah, we have a whole bunch of exciting stuff planned this season. And if you want to support all of that, you can head to patreon.com slash or interiorloud.ca hit the Patreon link. You can donate anywhere from 3 to $5 to more if you want. Most people do 3 to 5 and every little bit helps. Again, that is OntarioLoud.ca slash Patreon. All right, on to the interview.
1: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed our news banter at the beginning of this episode. For our deep dive today, we're digging into a very important and timely discussion. There's a lot of public debate about the need to introduce protected paid sick leave in Ontario, particularly within the context of the pandemic. There are a lot of opinions floating around. There are many opinions floating around. We've got the standard points being made by the CFIB that businesses can't afford for their workers to have protected paid sick days. Premier Ford recently said that there's, quote, no reason for the province to introduce paid sick leave legislation and punted the province's responsibility to the federal government and underscored the availability of the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. But we all know that opinions don't equal facts. And to help us wade through the facts about why protected paid sick leave legislation is needed in Ontario, I am so honoured that we have Brittany Andrew-Amofa with us for the conversation. Brittany is a Policy and Research Manager at the Broadbent Institute, She and her colleagues across the sector have been researching, developing policy ideas, and advocating for protected paid sick leave for some time. I'm sure that Brittany will help us better understand the issues. But before we get into the discussion, let's set the stage. In Canada, for the most part, responsibility for legislating paid sick leave rests with the provincial and territorial governments. The federal government is responsible for federally regulated employees. According to the Decent Work Health Network, three jurisdictions have legislated paid sick days. Workers in Quebec have two paid sick days a year. Workers in PEI have one paid sick day after five years with the same employer. And workers in federally regulated sectors have three paid sick days a year. In 2018, under the former provincial government, Ontario introduced 10 flexible job-protected personal emergency leave days to all workers. With the first two being paid, the current Ontario government repealed these two paid sick days and restricted how the remaining eight days are used. In 2019, when the Ontario government took away these two paid sick days, the argument was that these days were job killers. Fast forward to 2020 and 2021, and now we see that the absence of protected paid sick leave is, unfortunately, and quite literally, killing workers. Workplaces remain one of the largest sources of transmission of COVID-19 in the province. Many of these workers are low and lower income workers, racialized workers, women, people who are essential workers, working in our long-term care facilities, delivering our packages, working in grocery stores. And so let's get right to it. Brittany, welcome to the pod. How are you?
3: Hello, hello. I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to get into this conversation. Uh, It's very timely, very timely.
1: It is very timely, and we are so excited and just eager to learn from you. We know that you've been doing this work and advocating for protected paid sick leave legislation for some time. You've done a lot of research in this space, and what's most telling about our responses is is that we kind of don't think about how we fare in terms of other jurisdictions worldwide. What is most telling about how Canada fares overall compared to other countries? How does Ontario fare?
3: Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for outlining the landscape in which paid sick leave is offered and provided across the country. As noted, two provinces currently offer A few days and in federal employees have some access to paid sick days. So across the country, it is quite dismal. And this has been something that's been on the radar for decent work advocates for quite some time. There was a slight win in Ontario back a few years back under the Liberal government, where two paid sick days were acquired, but then that was scrapped when the Ford government came into power. Uh, So in regards to where does Canada Situate itself in the larger kind of sick leave policy program across the world. And I would say not very good. Sick leave is, especially in jurisdictions that are comparable to Canada's, it is actually the norm. When we look at countries across Europe, they have a pretty standardized sick leave process or sick leave program across the board. Yes, it does vary from country to country. However, it is the norm to be provided at least the bare minimum of having some sort of protection or financial protection integrated into your work uh, as it relates to paid sick leave or even long-term sick leave or sick pay in general. So just to note some jurisdictions that have this sort of program, Germany offers up to six weeks and even longer if it's a long-term paid uh, a long-term illness Norway starting off the bat nine working days for a short-term illness Sweden again seven days up to seven days and after seven days you then have to present a doctor's note in the UK up to 28 weeks before it goes into a long-term illness and In Australia, full-time workers are entitled up to 10 days of personal emergency leave. Now, again, noting some of those countries, Australia is a Westminster parliamentary system like ours. So that is why it's quite notable that we can draw that comparison from those countries. But even if you look at Norway and Sweden, in terms of how they structure their economy. Some could call it more social democratic countries or countries that have more rights integrated into their framework. And Canada somewhat situates within that framework as well in terms of how our our, our economy is structured. So that's why those two countries are also notable. So in general, Canada is not doing very well. Our provinces across the board are not doing very well. And it's been quite apparent that this shortcoming has unfortunately resulted in really negative and dire outcomes in this pandemic. And uh, this is why the calls for paid sick days have become even louder during this time.
1: Wow. I had no idea about how Canada writ large fares just globally, right? Because we get so caught up in our context, whether it's Mm -hmm. locally or
3: provincially or nationally, Or we even get caught up in comparison comparing ourselves to the US, which is no country to compare ourselves to when it comes to social policies, economic policies that guarantee a certain right of certain set of uh, protections. So when we have the US uh, so close to us, it can kind of skew our understanding of what are the norms uh, across, I would say, in more advanced economies like ours.
1: If we could just talk a little bit about our own internal jurisdictional politics then for a second. It feels like that there's like a a game of hot potato being played. Mm -hmm. The feds are like, not it. The provinces are like, not it. And so while legislating paid sick leave for most Ontario workers rests with the Ontario government, the government is pointing to the recently established federal program, the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. And so just so that we have all of the facts and so that folks listening who may need access to this benefit, actually. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about the CRSB? Who does it cover for what and how much? And do you think that it's based off of that? So is the Ontario government right in saying, well, there is this program here, so you can access that, or what is it about protected paid sick leave legislation that furthers protections for workers?
3: Mm-hmm. This is such a great question because I think uh, having a jurisdictional understanding of where social policies lie are, is really critical in terms of the public being able to figure out how to navigate uh, the variety of different social programs that exist during this time. But even also helps shape their understanding of who is supposed to do what and which order of government can, is supposed to fulfill whatever need or program or policy, et cetera. So uh, in Canada, employment legislation usually and always, uh, for the most part, uh, falls under provincial jurisdiction. And that is where labor laws are crafted. When it came to this pandemic, and when it came to really looking to see which order of government was to take a leadership position in terms of providing the supports that people across this country needed in order to either stay home or in order to have some sort of financial protection as it relates to safeguarding them from COVID, it naturally fell on the federal government. They have a purview over. People from coast to coast, they have the spending power. So as a result, this summer, through negotiations with the NDP at large, uh, the federal liberal government decided to implement or create a sick leave program or the Canada Recovery sickness program now this is quite unprecedented nothing like this has existed in this way before we do have employment insurance and it has kind of a stream as it relates to sickness benefits but in terms of having a sick program or benefit program it hasn't been done on the federal level and those sort of programs would traditionally fall um, to the provincial level but it seemed most appropriate at the time that the federal government filled this gap. It was filling a financial support gap through CERB. Obviously, doesn't capture those who fall sick at work. It is for those who lose work. So it was in addition to the number of different financial programs that were being provided during this time. So in regards to whether it was appropriate for the federal government to provide this or not, I would absolutely say yes. It was widely agreed across the board that some sort of sickness program that people could apply to was important considering that we will continue to have a subset of workers or essential workers at all times, even when the economy is closed for the most part or even when people are asked to stay home. There's always going to be a subset of workers for the most part who need to do the essential things that are important for our day to day operations and And also, if and when the economy does start to open, as we did see in provinces across the country in Ontario during the summer, we were in stage three, which was open with a set of restrictions, so it wasn't fully normal, but there were it, there was a resemblance of of normalcy getting sick during that period of time when there were more workers going back to work was a possibility, so that's why this benefit came into fruition, and I would say i was a I'm a huge supporter of that benefit. However, just looking through the data when the program was implemented in September, late September, uh, there was a huge up, I mean, there was hundreds of thousands of people that applied and then there was a pretty steady decline as weeks went by despite the fact that there was an uptick in cases rising and even more so cases, cases rising, particularly in workplaces. So there was obviously some sort of discrepancy happening there, given the availability of the program, but given the fact that workplace infections were continuing to rise, it didn't seem like people were taking to the program as maybe we had all intended it to. So that is where it further renewed calls for provincial paid sick leave to address a lot of the very extremely valid critiques that the um, Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit has. And given that benefit is meant to be temporary, it was always meant to be a temporary program. And given that it's temporary, there is no long term permanent plan in place. So that is kind of What that program is. Even up to today, that program is still available, and I encourage people to continue to apply to that program. But that program is not without its faults, and those faults largely do exist because it's on the federal level. It's not the appropriate jurisdiction to implement something as fast and readily available as it could. But, I mean, there are tweaks that the federal government could implement to make it a bit more seamless. But it also, again, further exposes why provinces across the board need to step up and mandate employer-paid sick days, and that is by changing labor laws and legislation.
1: I really like how you kind of walked us through an understanding of, okay, well, what is the CRSB? What is it intended to do? good policy intentions from the federal government and a very a hugely important benefit at the time that it was introduced and still introduced, but people are falling through their gaps and you can see it through the evidence in the number of people that are taking up the benefit. And so I guess that, that takes us to, so who is falling through the gaps, mm-hmm. right? There's who doesn't have access to either the CRSB or to paid sick leave through their employers there's been a lot of one thing about covid is that it has made inequities in our society absolutely irrefutable and so what does this discussion around protected paid sick leave tell us about inequities in in the labor market and maybe society writ
3: large yeah yeah i mean this is it's been a really difficult year on all fronts and i know those who have faced the most difficulties are those who have either lost a loved one, friend, parent, family member, but also those who are lower on the socioeconomic status of it all. Those who are low wage, um, low pay workers, those who are essential workers, um, those who don't have the option to work from home, and face additional risks as it relates to this pandemic. And I think it's it's always really important to center those who's who have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and that although it's difficult for all of us we've all sacrificed there are some people who are making more sacrifices than others and not by choice at this time mm-hmm. or with little choice actually uh, so i would say those workers who are at greater risk are, as I mentioned, essential workers who are working in factories, warehouses, the manufacturing sector, the food processing sector, those who are working in the healthcare sector, those who are working in childcare or caregiving services, grocery stores, et cetera. Those who are kind of keeping our society running during this point in time. And I would even say gig workers in a variety of maybe delivery service apps, et cetera. And aside from workers who are in those fields who are unionized and who do have the uh, fortune of, you know, having standardized pay, labor protections, et cetera, a vast majority are completely beholden to their employers or the private sector. And as a result, they often are in extremely low pay, minimum wage pay. Even though working in some of our most important and critical jobs in this moment in time, those who are working in minimum pay, especially those in the manufacturing sector and those in food processing sector that that workplaces there's been reports of those workplaces being really crowded, not having a lot of good workplace safety practices that has also renewed calls for workplace inspections and even sanctions given to those employers who are not you know enforcing public health guidelines, whether those Mm -hmm. are distancing regulations or ensuring that their employees are, whether it's in well-ventilated areas, people are wearing masks, et cetera. We, for the large part, know what some of those public health guidelines are. But farm work, well, factory workers, manufacturing workers, and farm workers, which I excluded initially, my bad. Farm workers as it relates to those in the agricultural sector, migrant workers, et cetera, Unfortunately, do happen to work in more crowded conditions Mm. and conditions where there is little employee and employer oversight. So these are the workers that are really at risk. And these are the workers that would benefit the most from a paid sick day program. And again, I, I mean, part time workers as well don't often accumulate the hours or even have, I would say, the benefits that full-time workers do have as it relates to maybe maybe even accessing those paid sick days programs or benefits that their full-time employee counterparts are are afforded. So there's a lot of discrepancies as it relates to work, the nature of work, who works in those places. We know that when it comes to low-pay essential work, Racialized folks are are predominantly in in those fields as it relates to even long-term care workers, healthcare workers, caregivers, childcare. Again, a lot of immigrant workers, first-time immigrants, racialized people work in those fields. So it's really, it's a class issue. It's a low-wage issue. It's a racial justice issue. And that is why I think when we talk about paid sick days, it doesn't just kind of fall on those like the typical sentiments like oh these are activists that are calling for x y and z like no these are real people with whose lives are on the line here and there are friends there are families these are people that we know who are going to work these are people we see when we go to the grocery store or when we are accessing a variety of different goods and products so it's a very real life issue and uh, I think that's why it has been really hard to ignore over the last few months.
1: Yeah, I mean, these people and people who have families and friends are feeding us, are caring for us, are taking care of our kids if you're an ECE and the daycare is open. And so it as much as it it kind of boggles the mind as to to how we're in this situation, I, the urgency for protected paid sick leave in across Canada and especially in Ontario is needed now more than ever. And so and now I was just thinking about your comments around farm workers and how crowded their working conditions can be and now with new variants of COVID coming up and some of the modeling around the transmission of new variants and what that could mean for our case caseload of COVID and how it spreads and its impact it, the Public health and protected paid sick leave cannot be divorced anymore. And so from your perspective and from your colleagues across the sector, what is it that Ontario needs to do? If you could advise and say this is what needs to happen, what would you be
3: asking for? If only I could advise, <laughs> if I can have the ear of the premier, how mm-hmm. wonderful would that be? So absolutely changing employment legislation to implement at least 10 days of paid sick days and 14 days when it comes to an infectious emergency period like the one we are in now. I think there's something to say as it relates to the current federal program and the lag time that currently exists in regards to when you go to apply or access the program. And how long you have to be off work in order to receive it. So right now it's uh, roughly a week. I think they're working on reducing it, but I'd be hard pressed to see it get shorter than that. Just, I mean, as it relates to the CERB and all the other federal benefits, even a week processing time is quite, it's in the context of things it's fast. I know it's not fast, but I mean, in terms of where it sits jurisdictionally, it's not the slowest turnover time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh I I think there's something to say with the two paid sick days that were reversed when the Ford government came in, how useful those would have been right now if when people needed to, when people do, and if they need to take a COVID test, you're getting results between 12 to 24, maybe upwards of 48, 72 hours, depending on where you are. Those two sick days would have came so clutch right now. And it would have been able to afford people some protection as it relates to even that wait time to get a COVID test. But I mean, that wouldn't have been enough. If you do have COVID, you're off for... A number of days. And that is when getting a sort of a sickness benefit would be crucial. But even that would have been able to act as a buffer. Right. Mm. So I think thinking through that and acknowledging that I think it's really important and really critical. But I mean, it's time for the before the government has to act. I mean, I've seen and read and heard that they're calling on the feds to fix the program. That's great. And that's dandy. Given the fact that the Ford government wasn't even interested in having some form of a paid sick day program in general, regardless of where it fell, I, I, I don't have much faith in their advocacy, to be honest. And so if they wanna start there and, and call for a better program, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. However, it, they also have a role in responsibility here to look at what has been done in the past and the reversal of the paid sick days that were already in place. And they also acknowledge some responsibility in terms of what they're not doing now. And I think no time other than now has shown how important paid sick days are, how important it is to update labor and employment legislation in Ontario and provinces across Canada, and how critical it is for people to not be falling through the gaps. And the only way they won't do so is if we change and update employment legislation. There's no way around that. And in terms of the critique from the Canadian Small Businesses Association, or even just Businesses who may come forward and say they can't afford it, which I do have to note, not all small businesses are of this mm-hmm. same. So it's not a, a stance across the board, but you know there are wage subsidy programs being provided by the federal government. It's something I actually had thought about, but Queen Bardisi outlined it so so well in his op-ed in the Toronto Star in terms of drawing the connection between the business supports that are being provided right now and how those supports can further be translated into topping that up to help supplement or provide um, some paid sick leave. So this can be done. This is not a pie in the sky advocacy call. This is real life. And there are a number of ways it can be done. It was done before it can be done again and it absolutely needs to be done now.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's interesting in sort of thinking about not all small businesses are the same and not all businesses are the same, but but the groups that are kind of advocating against, against fair labor legislation for workers, the argument is constantly, well, we can't afford to do so. And so I'm going to be devil's advocate for a little mm-hmm. bit and say, all right, Brittany, I'm the premier. And uh, yeah, I hear you. I really hear you. But, you know, our businesses just can't afford this right now. And so, yeah, maybe a wage subsidy change could help. But what would you what would you say to those that that are counter these efforts? What is the narrative switch here? How do we compel people to to understand? And maybe it's an economic or business case that you're closed right now, and small businesses businesses are closed while large businesses
3: mm. are operating. How would you shift the narrative? First, I want to say I love this game, and I would say if your policy can't stand the test of being the subject of a devil's advocate, then you got to go back to the drawing board. So I I, I want to answer this question. So you make an excellent point that at this moment in time, small businesses are not operating at full capacity, and it is large businesses and corporate Businesses and big box stores that are largely providing the goods and services to people in this moment of time—they have been reaping so much profit throughout this pandemic. I mean, I haven't gone back to the drawing boards to see the exact numbers, uh, but I would even say, <laughs> Blah Blah's alone—that grocery store has their profits have gone through the roof. Amazon, the fat, the most lucrative company right now during like at this moment in time has received so much profit and it's unfortunate because there has been news stories of their workers contracting Mm -hmm. COVID Mm -hmm. and not having the sort of labor protections and job security that they should be afforded but yes so I would say these big box stores corporations etc can absolutely no doubt um, afford to provide their workers with paid sick leave and at the very least use their pandemic profits to pay it and to do so so they're not a group of businesses that i'm worried about but as it relates to small businesses i hear that yes maybe not all can maybe afford it or be able to provide it without incurring some costs so this is why our government in general exists i don't think it is unreasonable To have some sort of government program that creates an eligibility requirement for businesses who make under a certain amount, or maybe have a certain amount of employees, et cetera, have some sort of assistance some sort of financial assistance program. Again, eligibility requirements are really important. So how much profits they reap, what are their costs throughout the year, et cetera, taking all those things into consideration and them being eligible for some sort of financial support to help make this happen. I I don't think that's far-fetched. So again, focusing on the real culprits here, uh, I think is, is really critical.
1: Thanks, Brittany. Yeah, I've just now I've, I'm just going through my mind on all of the supports that are, you know, being provided to businesses right now. And I'm not saying that they're bad. There's a lot of analysis and pushback coming about them, especially in terms of businesses in terms of rent supports, for yeah. businesses in terms of the wage subsidy. And again, it's just, it's a stark reminder of what our investments tell us where our priorities are.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the absence of a rent benefit, an emergency rent benefit for people um, who can't make their rent right now. And we're seeing eviction orders and the the chaos in the LTB in Ontario right now. It's just, it's a really stark reminder of, of your investments tell you what your priorities are and who your priorities are. And so I guess my last question for you is that we talked a little bit about, about narrative shift and story shift. And but we are starting to see that, right? Like we've seen Mississauga Mayor uh, Bonnie Crombie mm-hmm. call for protected paid sick leave. We've seen Toronto's Chief Medical Officer of Health make a strong case and call for it. And these these officials don't necessarily make, make calls that are so political in the moment that they are so political. And I guess what If you had one key takeaway about what this shift might represent, what are you hopeful about and what do you think that represents and where do you think further work lies ahead?
3: Yeah, I was so hopeful to see Toronto's public health officer come out and acknowledge and state so clearly the need for paid sick days. That gave me a lot of hope, I I, I would have to say. And even just seeing different city officials, elected officials come forward. I mean, there's been a number of city councilors here in Toronto, but as you mentioned, Mayor Bonnie in Mississauga, Brampton's mayor has also come out and there's been a number of different city officials and it, it, it feels as if there's a growing united voice around this particular issue. And that is gonna be really key and critical in terms of ensuring that there's a win. I I mean, public health operates largely out of politics as it should, and from a personal perspective, there hasn't necessarily been a lot of long-term policy ideas coming out of public health. So to hear that this policy idea was integrated into their understanding and plan in terms of keeping Ontarians, or Toronto, sorry, but in other jurisdictions, their residents safe was really key and critical. So... I would say, yeah, that that gives me hope. And now, I mean, paid sick days is one policy solution that is so critical and needed in this point in time. And again, I'm always talking about the need to use all the tools in our toolbox right now, particularly to fight the pandemic. And especially as we're starting to see cases at this moment in time on January 29th in Ontario decline, and it's been on the rise for the last couple of months. And now that it's on the decline, it's even more important now that we put the measures in place so that we don't see a steady rise again. And one of those things that will help ensure that in the long-term will be paid sick days. Uh, work Worker protections are also really critical and important. Contact tracing is also important. Really getting a handle of what's happening in our long-term care homes is critical. And that involves a number of different sweeping policy measures and changes that we just can't rely on vaccines to solve. And, so again, like those, all of those things need to be considered. And when we start taking those steps to implement policies that address the root causes of spread, but also the root causes that enable people to be greater at risk, then I think that will give us all hope to see that there's light at the end of the tunnel as it relates to this pandemic.
1: Well, on that note, Brittany, and that hopeful note, thank you so much for joining us today. As a reminder for folks listening, Brittany Andrew-Amofa is the Policy and Research Manager at the Broadbent Institute.
0: And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy in Ontario, hosted by Grimm Metallica Taylor Chris Martin, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. Carmen Mundy helps us do research, communications, and sends us funny memes in the group chat. If you like what you heard, you can go to iTunes and give us a review. The reviews really, really help boost us in the App Store. Or head to patreon.com slash ontarioloud and support the pod for less than a price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy, and it helps us keep doing this thing. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can get at us at, on Twitter at, at @OntarioLoud or send a note to OntarioLoudmail@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Finally, last but certainly not least, Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that these treaties are important. Too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase this history and we must do everything we can to fight it we ontario loud stand in solidarity with first nations in our community and we acknowledge that we have so so much more to do before there is truth and reconciliation in this country and that's all for us this week we will be back tuesday next tuesday at 6 a.m with another podcast for you have a great week